Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Rapnolis. When Back to the Future Part 3 came to theaters, I was working in a mall in my hometown at a video store. I loved working at the mall and would spend my lunch hour at McDonald's and then walking up and down the mall, checking out what's new, sometimes doing some light shopping. Now, one of my favorite stores to kill time in was a bookstore that we had in the mall, and I would go there and read magazines. I went in there once, and a fellow came up to me and said, don't you work in the video store? I said, yeah. So we started talking, and he started telling me about Back to the Future, how it was his favorite movie, how he loved the franchise, and how he was sad that there would be no more movies after Part 3. Then he started telling me all about these ideas he has for Part 4, Part 5, Part 6, all of them involving the train from the end of Back to the Future 3. It was amusing, and for about three days, we met almost every day at lunch to discuss it. He was animated and really into it. Nice guy. The fourth day, I came back to the store to read a magazine and try to relax during my lunchtime. He was there again. Started talking about Back to the Future again. I didn't get to read any magazines. I didn't get to do anything else but discuss Back to the Future. Now, I like Back to the Future, but this guy really loved Back to the Future. The next week, I came back to work. He was there again. I remember maybe two or three days later, I started feeling like a hunted man. I would go out on my lunch and keep my eye out for him. Now, across the way from the bookstore, there was a footlocker, and I had a friend who worked there, and I went to see him that week, and I was looking across the bookstore, and I saw the guy looking around. He was looking around for me to talk to. I'd been ducking him for a couple of days now, and yet here he was, still looking for me, and I wondered, does he have anybody else to talk to? And then it occurred to me, maybe he doesn't have anyone else to talk to. I told my friend at the Foot Locker I'd talk to him later, and I went over to the bookstore. The guy was thrilled to see me. Now, I wondered, did he think I was ducking him? Did he think I was trying to avoid him? Or or did he just think, well, I just can't find him. He must be up to something else. We had these conversations about Back to the Future for about two months. And I had to admit, it got painful. But I did respect how animated he got when he discussed the movies. And I do appreciate fandom. What I found most reassuring about the situation is that this guy sought me out. He wanted me to listen to his stories. Now, maybe that's because nobody else would, but it made me feel useful. And it was only 20 minutes out of my day, and maybe I didn't get to read a magazine. But I did get to meet a friend. Now, I don't know where he is. I haven't talked to him since I stopped working at the mall many, many years ago. But I hope he's out there, maybe somewhere on the internet, writing Back to the Future fan fiction, I hope. Or maybe he finally succeeded in building that flux capacitor, and he's gone back in time. And it's his future self that keeps meeting me in the mall to discuss his favorite subject, Back to the Future. I doubt that's the case, but a fan can always dream. On today's show, we're going to talk about the first Back to the Future movie. We're going to talk about the people who created it, the stars and actors in it. We'll talk about its reception, how well it did. We'll talk a little bit about the sequels. They're big enough that they could be their own podcast. And we'll talk about where you can get Back to the Future today. We have an info-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show.
Back to the Future is a science fiction comedy film that was released in 1985. It was directed by Robert Zemeckis. It was written by Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis and produced by Steven Spielberg. Now, we'll get to the cast a little bit later, but I might use some of these names. It starred Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd, Leah Thompson, and Crispin Glover. The film is a story about a teenager who accidentally travels back in time from 1985 to 1955 and meets his parents. He basically interferes with their budding romance and has to repair history and travel back to 85. The idea for that started in the mind of the writer and producer Bob Gale. Gale had worked on projects like 1941, used cars, and I think he wrote some episodes of Kolchak the Night Stalker. He had the idea when he was visiting his parents and he was searching their basement and found his father's yearbook. Upon perusing it, he realized his father was president of his graduating class and made him think about his own graduating class and about how he had no relationship with the president of his class and it made him wonder, would he have been friends with his father if they had went to school together? So with that idea in mind, he returned to Hollywood, the Dream Factory, and met with Robert Zemeckis and mentioned this concept to him. At that point, you might have known Zemeckis as the director of Used Cars, but post Back to the Future, he would work on the sequels, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Forrest Gump, The Polar Express, Beowulf, those animations where people don't quite look real. So he tells the idea to Zemeckis, and Zemeckis adds to it with this idea of a mother who claims that she had never kissed any boys in school when... In fact, she had been promiscuous in school. So the two took the project to Columbia Pictures and made a development deal for a script. This was in September of 1980. They decided to set the story in 1955 because they thought it made sense for a 17-year-old who was traveling to meet his parents at the same age meant traveling to that decade. The 50s were also good because it marked the time when teenage culture was rising up in America. There was some crazy stuff in the original script. The time machine was a refrigerator, and you needed an atomic explosion to power it, which would have made Indiana Jones in that last movie that he was in a time traveler with that magical refrigerator of his. The refrigerator idea was dropped. According to Zemeckis, he was concerned that kids might accidentally get locked into refrigerators trying to emulate the kid in the movie. And the climax of the film with the nuclear explosion would have been too expensive. At that time, they decided to change the time machine to the quintessentially 1980s car, the DeLorean, and started working out the details, the relationship between the mother, the relationship between Doc Brown and Marty, and fleshing out the villain of the movie, Biff. The first draft of the script was finished in February of 1981, and Columbia put the film into turnaround. They thought it was a decent enough film, but a little too cuddly. They wanted it to be spiced up. At that point, they suggested that to get the movie made, they would have to add something new or bring the movie to someone like Disney. Every major film studio rejected the script for four years. At that point, they worked on two more drafts of the film. See, at the time, teen comedies were a little bit more risque than what teen comedies are nowadays. They were aimed more at adults. So the script was rejected for being too family-friendly or too light. When Gale and Zemeckis finally did go to Disney with the story, Disney said, well, this is a little too risque for us. They thought the idea of a mother falling in love with their son was not appropriate for Disney. So you had one group telling them it's not risque enough, so then they finally do bring it to Disney, and Disney's like, whoa, what are you trying to do here? At some point after the film was released, a rumor started that Robert Zemeckis was not the first choice to helm Back to the Future. 
at no time was he not considered to direct Back to the Future. The big rumor is that Leonard Nimoy was being considered, but that he couldn't do it because he was working on another time-traveling movie at the time, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, which is another great, great movie from that time period. This week's podcast brought to us by Drag Racing. The drag races, they're anything but a drag. There's fun, thrills, and excitement. And they're bursting out of the bag. The drag races are a thousand things. But one thing they're not is a drag. Love those drag races. At this point, they really wanted to get this movie made, but they weren't sure who to go to. They had worked with Steven Spielberg on Used Cars, and it had been a flop, and they didn't want to go in and do another flop with him and never get another call from Steven Spielberg. They also thought they would be those guys who only could work because their buddy Steven Spielberg would give them work. At this point, Zemeckis chose to direct the movie Romancing the Stone. It had a box office success, and now... Zemeckis was considered a high-profile director, so he went to Spielberg with the concept, and the project was set up at Universal Pictures. At Universal, the executive, Sidney Scheinberg, had some changes that he wanted made to the movie, and some of those changes made it into the film. Among those were change the name of Marty's mother from Meg to Lorraine, which was the name of Sidney Scheinberg's wife, Lorraine Gary, and he also wanted to replace Brown's pet chimpanzee with a dog. So, Brown might have had a pet monkey, as opposed to the Einstein that we know and love. He also made a suggestion that they change the title of the movie to Spaceman from Pluto. Happily, Spielberg pushed back on that particular thing, and the movie stayed Back to the Future. So a little bit about the cast of the movie. The star of the movie, Michael J. Fox, played Marty McFly. Now you'll hear a ton of different people read for the role of Marty McFly. And as it turns out, half of Hollywood might have read for this role. Michael J. Fox was the first choice, but he was tied to the television show Family Ties. So they went with Eric Stoltz, who actually played and was directed as Marty McFly. But it didn't work out. Four weeks into filming... Zemeckis realized Stoltz was completely wrong for the part. Now, they knew that reshooting all those scenes would add a lot of money to the budget, but they thought this is not going to work out right. So they went back, they worked out a deal with the Family Ties people, and Michael J. Fox got to play the role of Marty McFly, a role he was born to play. Some of the other people who always get talked about as part of this movie, Ralph Macchio, C. Thomas Howell, Corey Hart, Johnny Depp, and John Cusack. From what I understand, though, of that huge list, the only person seriously considered besides Stoltz and Fox was C. Thomas Howell. Christopher Lloyd played Dr. Emmett Brown. A couple of people were considered for the role of Doc Brown, including John Lithgow, Dudley Moore, Jeff Goldblum. Now, I've read that John Lithgow was actually the first choice, but he became unavailable to work on the film. So Christopher Lloyd got the role after that, because one of the producers on the movie, Neil Canton, had worked with him on the movie The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai. Lloyd originally turned down the role, but his wife was quite insistent that he take it. So he reread the script and decided that he would do it. Now, Dr. Emmett Brown's middle name is Lathrop. 
and this has caused all sorts of speculation because Lathrop could kind of be the word portal spelled backwards with an H added in, and Emmett could be time with letters changed. It's a stretch. I guess you can see time portal in there, but according to Robert Zemeckis, he just thought they kind of sounded good together. And since the guy's last name was Brown, having a complicated first and middle name was a good contrast. Leah Thompson played Lorraine McFly, Nee Baines. And I've heard she actually got the role because she had acted opposite Stoltz in The Wildlife. So she got the role based on the original casting of Marty McFly. Crispin Glover played George McFly. In interviews, Zemeckis had said that Glover improvised much of the nerdy mannerisms and shakiness and that he had to constantly try to rein Crispin in because he was almost always completely off base in his interpretation of the character. He certainly does make George McFly his own, and he does become a very interesting character. Glover would sue Universal over the use of his likeness in Back to the Future Part 2, but it never went to trial. It was settled out of court because they thought it would be cheaper to pay Glover off than to go to trial. So Glover got the cash, dropped the lawsuit. Thomas F. Wilson played Biff Tannen. The original choice was an actor named J.J. Cohen, but Stoltz was kind of tall, especially as compared to Michael J. Fox, so they thought that Cohen, who was shorter, was too unconvincing to be bullying Stoltz around. So Cohen was recast as one of Bitt's cohorts, and Thomas F. Wilson got the part. Claudia Wells played Michael J. Fox's love interest, Jennifer Parker. Wells had to temporarily drop out due to a scheduling conflict and was briefly replaced by Melora Hardin. But Hardin had to be replaced when it was discovered that she was much taller than Michael J. Fox. In the sequel, she was replaced by Elizabeth Shue, and she had made the decision not to take the role in part two because she had decided to be with her mother, who was suffering from cancer at the time. So, a person with their priorities in order. Rounding out the McFly clan, you had Mark McClure playing Dave McFly. Mark McClure has worked in a lot of things, including the Superman films as Jimmy Olsen, and he has a great segment in Amazon Women on the Moon, where he plays Ray in the video date segment. Great stuff. He continues to work in a lot of things. Wendy Jo Sperber, who played Linda McFly, passed away in 2005. She's a great character actress who, besides being in Back to the Future, was also in the TV series Private Benjamin and Bosom Buddies, as well as a very memorable role in the movie Bachelor Party as Dr. Tina Gasco. And now, these messages. Are you sure about this? Yep. goes nothing. All right, we made it. So this is the future? In the year 2015. We haven't eaten in 25 years. Pizza. What about that place that delivers? Yeah. What happened to them? future is this? Yeah, there's no pizza anywhere. What a trap. Officer, where do you get pizza around here? Turn around, guys. In the future, like today, there's really only one place to get a great pizza. Pizza Hut. Wow, nice look, guys. Very 80s. Pizza Hut! Making it great. Nothing! Uh-oh, bullies! Mom? Dad? 
this? Back to the future. It's almost like being in the movie. An interactive game from LJ. Dr. Emmett L. Brown here. Through the wonder of video spectronomy, I'm recording an amazing phenomenon. McDonald's Back to the Future Hamburger Happy Meal for $1.99. Analysis shows it comes with one of four toys, like Marty McFly, some old guy in my DeLorean. Holy bovine, is he familiar? Switching to x-ray mode reveals one toy each week when you buy your kids a $1.99 McDonald's Happy Meal. Hmm, perhaps I should forgo further documentations and just have lunch. What you want is what you get at McDonald's today. So a little bit more detail about the plot of Back to the Future. can't imagine that people haven't seen the movie at this point. But if you haven't, you might want to pause it, go watch it, come back. In which case, you could probably just skip this whole part. Marty McFly, a teenager living in Hill Valley, California. His family is kind of down on their luck. His father is constantly bullied by his supervisor, Biff Tannen. His mother's an overweight alcoholic, and his brother and sister aren't doing too well. One of the things he has going for him is that he's friends with an eccentric local scientist named Dr. Emmett Brown, Doc for short. Things are going bad for Marty. He just wants to be a musician and wants life to be better. Doc gives him a call and says, could you bring the video camera? I want to show you something tonight. He shows up at the Twin Pines Mall and Doc demonstrates his time machine that he built out of a DeLorean, which requires plutonium to work. Unfortunately, he stole the plutonium from some terrorists who are hunting him down. Doc gets shot. Marty jumps in the time machine to escape the terrorists, but he gets the DeLorean up to 88 miles an hour, which is the speed at which time travel happens, and he is magically transported to the date that Doc had put into the time circuits, November 5th, 1955, which is the day that Doc had invented the flux capacitor, which makes time travel possible. A fun little fact, when Marty jumps into 1955, he is on a farm, and he runs over a pine tree. Later on, when they come back to the Twin Pines Mall, it's no longer called Twin Pines. It's now called Lone Pine Mall. Fun little thing. In 1955, he meets his mother and father and somehow manages to ruin the possibility that they will get into a relationship. At this point, he needs to meet Doc, get the time machine working, using the lightning to generate the 1.21 gigawatts of power necessary to go through time. This is, of course, because he doesn't have any plutonium. He also needs to get his mother and father back together. He manages to do this, and in doing so, he gives his father a lot more confidence, and when he returns to the future, his whole life is better. His brother and sister are successful, his mother and father look great, Biff is no longer bullying his father around. Happy ending. Or so we thought, because Doc shows up and says, I have to talk to you because in the future something's wrong, get in the now-flying DeLorean, and let's go to the sequel. If you managed to watch the film on VHS back in the day, they actually added a to-be-continued at the end of the VHS. This was taken out when they re-released it later. The movie would be followed by two other films, and I think we'll talk about those in at least one separate podcast. Does this sound familiar? That had me dancing around the room. 
That is the theme song to Back to the Future. And it was written by Alan Silvestri. Silvestri had collaborated with Zemeckis on Romancing the Stone, but when they went to Spielberg with the idea to do a mostly electronic score, like Romancing the Stone was, Spielberg put the kibosh on it. So Zemeckis told Silvestri to make the composition grand and epic. Zemeckis seemed to realize that Spielberg was a sucker for grand and dramatic, and the new score got the approval of Spielberg. Silvestri began recording the score two weeks before the first preview, and it worked because even now, the film's score is often chosen by movie-going fans as one of the best of all time. Silvestri suggested that they decide to use some pop music, which could be a hook for the movie, and suggested that they use Huey Lewis in the news. The song that eventually would be chosen for the film is The Power of Love. The studio loved the song, but they weren't happy that the title of the film didn't appear in the song. So another song, Back in Time, was featured in the film, which was much more related to the title of the film. It would be played during the scene where Marty arrives in 85, and again during the end credits. Lewis makes a brief cameo in the film as a schoolteacher who dismisses Marty's band for being too loud after playing his heavy rock version of The Power of Love. Hello, fellas. I'm afraid you're just too darn loud. Next please. In the movie, Michael J. Fox appears to be playing the guitar and appears to be singing. His singing was actually done by Mark Campbell, and Fox did a great job of acting like he could play the guitar. He was taught to do that by musician Paul Hansen. The music during Johnny Be Good was done by Tim May, and at the beginning, when he's auditioning where he gets rejected by Huey Lewis, it was played by Paul Hansen. The film had a $19 million budget and opened on July 3rd, 1985 on 1,200 screens in North America. Zemeckis and Gale were worried because they didn't feel the marketing was up to snuff. Yet when the film came out, it shot to number one and would spend 11 weeks at number one. In fact, the second weekend was higher than the first, which means the film had great word of mouth. A month after the release, the movie National Lampoon's European Vacation came out, knocked them out of number one for one week, then the week after that, they were back at number one. The film would go on to gross $210.6 million in North America and 170.5 in foreign countries for a total of $381.11 million. It was the fourth highest opening weekend of 1985 and the top grossing movie of the year. Spielberg presents Back to the Future, a Robert Zemeckis film. Marty leads an ordinary life. No McFly ever amounted to anything in the history of Hill Valley. Well, history is going to change. And 1985 is not his year. But Dr. Brown is about to change all that. Are you telling me you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? He's sending Marty 30 years back in time. Now, he's trapped in the past. This has got to be a dream. About to meet... Chocolate. ...his future father. He's a baby. Tough. Wow! And he's making an impression on his mother. He's an absolute dream. And he can sleep in my room. Ah. Anything you do could have serious repercussions on future events. Ah! 
Now he's got to make his mother and father fall in love. I haven't even been born yet. And only Dr. Brown can help him get back to the future. Are you telling me that this sucker is nuclear? Precisely. Michael J. Fox. Whoa, this is heavy. Christopher Lloyd. There's that word again, heavy. Why are things so heavy in the future? Is there a problem with the Earth's gravitational pull? Back to the future. film would win an Academy Award for Best Sound Editing and would receive three other nominations, one for The Power of Love, another for Sound Design, and another for Best Original Screenplay. The film won the Hugo Award that year for Best Dramatic Presentation and a Saturn Award for Best Science Fiction Film. The film would go on to spawn two sequels and also an animated series based on the trilogy and ran for two seasons each with 13 episodes it ran from september 7th 1991 to november 28th 1992 it would then be shown in reruns occasionally afterwards Now, recently, Back to the Future was released on Blu-ray. It's a very nice release, filled with extras, including finally getting to see Eric Stoltz play Marty McFly. The first DVD release of the film was in 2002, and I happily picked that up at the time. Now, a lot of people have been discussing, will there be more Back to the Future movies? According to Robert Zemeckis, there are no plans to remake or make a sequel to Back to the Future. So, what you have, that trilogy, is what you're going to get. Talk to them in 10 years, and maybe we'll see something different. But just because you can't get a Back to the Future movie doesn't mean you can't get a Back to the Future fix. Just last year, video game publisher Telltale Games released the first part of a five-part Back to the Future episodic video game. Bob Gale was brought on as a consultant for the game script, and Lloyd provided some voice work as Doc Brown. The game is set six months after the events of Part 3 and came out on the PC, Mac, PS3, and iPad in December, just in time for Christmas. Back to the Future is one of those great, great movies from the 1980s. Wholly original, well-written, well-acted, well-directed. The sequels are of different value to different people, but that first movie is just about as perfect as you can get. So if you have a weekend open, haven't seen Back to the Future in a while, run out, get it on DVD. If you have a Blu-ray player, check out that release. It's really great. I think you'll enjoy the easy charisma of Michael J. Fox, the eccentricities of Crispin Glover, and of course the amazing improvisational style of Christopher Lloyd. It's a great movie that deserves to be watched again and again. What makes the lightning? It's a story in rhyme. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, drop by the website at www.retroist.com. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at facebook.com slash retroist and twitter.com slash retroist. Thanks to Peachy for the music that you hear at the beginning of the podcast. If you have some musical needs, you can email Peachy at peachy at retroist.com. 
Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. The little drops get tossed through the air. The negatives and positives separate there. The negatives and positives separate. Go off to different places and accumulate. The bunches get bigger, the attraction gets stronger till you just can't hold them back any longer. Flash, a bunch of charges are off. And as they streak through the air, a mighty electric current sweeps through the air. There's a heat and a flash as the charges dash between the clouds or the clouds and the earth to join the opposite charges there. Flash, crash, that's lightning, brother, and that's positive. What makes the lightning? It's a story in rhyme Where the negatives and the positives make the heaven shine They were separated Then when they accumulated Got together and created Lightning Wow, that episode was heavy There's that word again, heavy why are things so heavy in the future? Is there a problem with the Earth's gravitational pull? This has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.